May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. On this, the second Sunday in Lent, we continue with our focus on the Psalms. The last Sunday, if you were here, you'll know that I spoke of the Psalms as often embodying a kind of faith in the raw, giving voice to things with a surprising honesty and toughness. At the same time, though, I suggested that our psalm for last Sunday, Psalm 130, was very carefully written, and that it maybe even had had some kind of liturgical function in the life of ancient Israel. Yet, simply because a text is written and shaped with great care, doesn't mean that it is any less raw or honest. I mean... Think of how a great songwriter or poet can labor over a particular piece that they're writing, choosing words and phrases and moving things around, just sort of pouring over it by the hour, searching for those exact right words, and in the end, offering something so authentic and so true that it can move us to tears. Well, that's what these carefully written psalms can also do. Psalm 25, tonight, is one of those very carefully constructed. Calvin Seerveld counts this as one of the psalms of wrestling. He comments that wrestling in faith with God for rescue and blessing, knuckles bared, fired up with chutzpah, is what the Lord wants from God's adopted children. Yet this particular chutzpah-fired text, a text in which the writer reflects not only on his own sense of guilt and of sin, but also on some very real threat being posed to him by foes or enemies around him. This text is extraordinarily carefully composed. We don't see it in English so much, but it's actually an acrostic poem. It's built around the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So each new line begins with the next letter from that alphabet, which would suggest that this song didn't kind of pour forth from the writer's heart, but rather was painstakingly constructed, edited into this form, maybe as a teaching tool, easier to memorize because of that alphabetical kind of a structure, particularly in the opening dozen or so verses, there is a powerful emphasis here on God as teacher, true teacher. So again, that kind of teaching tool. The writer or the psalmist writes, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth, teach me. And so a teaching tool, maybe. Yet, this longing to be taught, to be led, and ultimately to be befriended by God, that's an image that appears in verse 14, to be a friend of God. It all originates in a place of serious disorientation and dislocation. According to the biblical scholar Marshall Johnson, guilt dominates the psalmist's thinking. And it produces loneliness and affliction. 
The poet feels constricted, confined, caught in a net, and claustrophobic. Guilt has removed the joy of living and has become an obsession. Guilt. Here we go, some of you might be thinking, nothing like a solidly guilt-focused text to get a preacher really going, particularly in the season of Lent. And I'm not only going to talk about that guilt, I'm also going to talk about sin. Trust me, though, I have no intention in leaving anyone in a place of wallowing in guilt, and neither did this psalm writer. Psalm 25 actually uses three different Hebrew words to describe sin. Taken together, they should actually push us beyond any thin sense that sin is simply moral misbehavior. There's firstly a, a series of words, actually, based in the Hebrew word hata, which means missing the target. It's actually an archery term. I have not done what I should have done, as Gore Johnson writes in his Song of Confession. I've missed the mark, often in spite of my best intentions. Secondly, the psalmist uses the word pasa, meaning rebellion. Now, perhaps not insignificantly, one of the other places where that word pasa comes up in the Old Testament is in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah writes of, or uses the word as he writes of how Israel has been so very much like a teenager rebelling against his or her parents. Something which I suspect most of us can relate to in at least some way, that rebellion against parents. Maybe it's a further back memory for some. <laughs> but you know what? You know what he's getting at? That kind of rebellion. Thirdly is the word awan, which James Lindbergh says has the sense of being twisted or bent out of proper shape, bowed down. Here then, Lindbergh continues, in this one psalm with these three different words, are three pictures of life that is not right with God. A life not headed in the right direction, like a misfired arrow, but off target, a life of rebellion and a life twisted out of shape. In other words, rather than writing confessionally about some bad things that he's done, the psalmist is attempting to say something deeper about his whole way of being in the world as being in the wrong shape, his very being. He's living out of a place of profound brokenness and disorientation, which is further compounded by a sense that there are those all around him who are taking delight in his apparent weakness and vulnerability. Consider how many are my foes, he writes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. You begin to wonder why this poor psalm writer even bothered to get out of bed in the morning. Well, he bothered to get out of bed in the morning because, well, he may be profoundly aware of his own sense of guilt, maybe even obsessed with it, his own vulnerability because of it, He's also been schooled. There's that teaching word again. He's also been well-schooled in the promise of God's mercy. 
And so he writes, Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been as from old. Which suggests not only that this writer knows the stories of old, but is also prepared to remind God of God's merciful character, prepared almost to give God sort of a solid nudge in the direction of mercy and grace. Something that happens time and again in the Psalms, you know, sometimes they're kind of asking for help, and sometimes they feel as if they're kind of giving God a push, like, help me, you always said you would. We know the old stories where you did, so stay true to your word, thank you, Lord. Push. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. That's a prayer request. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. That's a challenge. That kind of challenging of God to actually be God, to act like God, is fair ball in the eyes of these psalm writers. Just as it was for Abraham and for Jacob in their wrestling with God. Just as it is all the way through the book of Job, in which again and again and again the character of Job looks to the heavens and says, Show me, Lord. Show me why my life is in such a disaster. And keep your word to be merciful. Thank you very much. If we take these psalms on our lips, in our mouth, actually to wrestle earnestly with God, comments Cal Seervelt, the Lord will indeed give grit to mature our faith. For Seervelt, the force of this particular psalm then is this. Quote, Remember how close we used to be, my Lord. I am waiting expectantly for you in your faithfulness to come and let me breathe more freely. Here's something, though, to keep in mind firmly in mind as we consider this psalmist's words. For all that he's laboring under the weight of guilt, for all that he's aware of the close presence of enemies, only too happy to see him crumble, he doesn't just give up and stay in bed. He looks to the stories and promises of old, he keeps them firmly in view. He doesn't reject the hope and promises he's inherited from his forebears, and he doesn't back away from the practice of prayer, even that kind of pushing, challenging, nudging of God kind of prayer. Instead, he wrestles. And he does so precisely by using the language, the stories, the practices in which he has been formed. In other words, rather than rejecting or cutting himself off, this psalmist continues to keep company with a community that carries his faith, that carries the tradition. And maybe in the end, that's the most important thing for us to hear. In our own various experiences of spiritual disorientation or dislocation that come, we need to hear that call that says, don't just go underground. When guilt becomes oppressive, when doubts become overwhelming, when circumstances make it almost impossible to get out of bed in the morning or to keep moving or to come out on a snowy night, 
It's all the more important to not back away, not isolate, not disappear. In those days when it's hard to hope or even to believe at all, you need to keep company with those who can. If it's hard to pray, let the community pray for you. If it's hard to sing in worship, let us do that for you. Stand with us and let our words and our songs fill your silence, fill your wordlessness. Even in the times when you experience life as not headed in the right direction but off target, in rebellion or twisted out of shape, there's always room for you here. Listen to the good news as proclaimed by the writer of Psalm 25 in ages of old and what he says to us in our age. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.